You are now tuned in to episode 65 of the Midwest Angler Podcast. I am Scott Sturman, joined by Matt Deitch, coming to you from my basement in Rock Rapids, Iowa. All the way from the basement. Live from the studio on the 73rd floor of... No, just kidding. <laughs> nope. Going down in my basement. This is two dudes hanging out. Yep. So, uh, no, uh, obviously uh, a lot of crazy things going on in the world right now. Um, you know, we could sit here and, and talk about that for, for years and years and years, but, uh, for anybody who's alive, if you're on Facebook, if you're on TV, that's all they're going to talk about. And so we are not going to talk nope. about it on here and talk fishing stuff. That's exactly right. Uh, cause that's what we are is a fishing podcast, fishing podcast. Yeah. That's the, we're going to try it on for size. See, yeah, see, see what fishing's fits. like. Uh, normally we just kind of spew a bunch of nonsense, but, uh, today we got a smart guy on. So, uh, we're going to, we're going to talk fishing. It's going to be, it's going to be smart. Uh, we got Dan Spangler on, uh, over at pure fishing. Uh, Dan designs, uh, the hard baits, terminal tackle, uh, all that stuff over there. And he's got a really cool story about how it all came about. And, uh, yeah, just, just wait. There's going to be some knowledge bombs dropped. That's right. All right. We'll get over to him. And we're here today with Dan Spangler, uh, hard bait uh, design and engineering uh, over at Pure Fishing. Dan, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Yeah, good to have you. Yeah, we've we've been wanting to have you on for quite a while, and yeah, I'm glad it finally worked out. So, uh, Dan, yep, sounds good. We're gonna start off with a couple random questions. I'll just kind of rapid fire a couple at you, uh, non-fishing okay. related. Uh, uh, peanut butter and jelly, or ham and cheese on your sandwich? <laughs> uh no i'm not gonna say both because that'd be weird but i'll probably go with peanut butter and jelly okay that's a good one iphone or android iphone all the way okay are you a morning person or a night owl uh well i have two kids now so neither (laughs) 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 what were you before i guess i was probably more of a night owl okay Yep. I, lo- I love getting up early, though, and at the crack of dawn and going fishing, though. I mean, there's something special about that. But uh, I, honestly, you know, I fish a lot of late hours in, in the night uh, in the spring for walleye. So I guess night. Yeah, wake, waking up for fishing and waking up for work is two different waking up. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're making lures, then it, well, that's it's, it's true. Pretty, yeah, it's different. Yeah, yeah, that is different. Uh, yep. Okay, so if you're going on a vacation, you going to the beach or to the mountains? Uh, I'm going to go to the mountains because I'll probably do some fishing. Heck yeah. That's right. All right, Dan. Well, uh, let's start talking about you here. Um, you grew up right close to us, uh, right over uh, in Ocheden, Iowa, correct? That's right. Yep. Okay, went to Sibley Ocheden High School? Yep, correct. Okay, and then uh, where did college take you? Uh, college took me to South Dakota State University. I was uh, I was there for seven and a half years, not just <laughs> getting my uh, undergraduate, but uh, I, I ended up getting my uh, degree in wildlife and fisheries management, and uh, that then led me to get my master's degree in fisheries research and management. Uh, so that was two and a half years there, and then I did get a um, a minor in journalism as well. So. I was there for a long time, and it was a it was a fantastic school. Well, you didn't do any fishing up in that area, did you? <laughs> yeah, there's no 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 fishing, fishing in South Dakota. No way. <laughs> <laughs> what were some of the lakes that you hit when you were up there? Oh, let's see. Uh, 
Lake Sinai, they call it up there. I yeah. always thought it was Sinai, Lake Sinai. Um, the 81 lakes, oh, yeah. where uh, they're bisected by that roadway, Highway 81. They closed those last year. Yep. Uh, but good walleye fishing there with grad student buddies. Lake Ponset, of course. Um, let's see. Went up north to Webster, fished some of those lakes. A lot of those lakes, I've, I've hit a lot of those. Um, but uh, Ponset's cool because... Uh, the, it's my favorite lake up there it was in grad school and, uh, kind of some cool stories about my research project that it, in, it, at SDSU, uh, I was tasked with characterizing the reproductive cycle of largemouth and smallmouth bass. So one of the first places I had to go was Lake Ponset and caught a smallmouth there and sacrificed it in the name of science. <laughs> it was, it was tough. I'm not, not going to lie, but right. you know, I'm not for it, keeping bass, but well, that's okay. Right. If it's for research purposes. Yep. Yep. That was the only one out of public waters I ever had to do that to. The rest were all private, but. Okay. <laughs> so you actually went to school uh, for, for fisheries then uh, nothing to do with engineering and, and whatnot, like the field you're in now. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Yep. That's awesome. Did you ever look into, uh, you know, it, was that your plan uh, originally was, you know, to do that? Or did you always have in the back of your mind that you wanted to come back and, and do something like uh, what you're doing? Well, it, it's kind of multifaceted, I guess. I mean, um, you know, I started making fishing lures when I was nine years old. I think the first one I ever did was like a paper clip inline spinner. I watched a lot of MacGyver, so I got inspired by that. Um, but, uh, you know, I... I was always making lures and I'd test them in the horse tank and fish every day. So I loved fishing. My dad, he was a, the executive conservation director for Osceola County. So, um, he, you know, kind of inspired me to look at the, you know, a wildlife and fisheries career path. So I always just thought of myself just going to be going to school to become a game warden or a fish biologist or something like that. Um, I always did, you know, having grown up next to the, you know, the world headquarters at the time of, of peer fishing. And at that point, I think it was called Outdoor Technologies, if you guys go back that far. Oh, yeah. But just growing up in the area, having the outlet store close by, always loving fishing lures and developing lures. Uh, I always did, you know, make lures on the side. I've developed probably over 150 different wooden lures and metal lures prior to you know, getting this job I have now. But uh, when I went to college, I was totally in gear to become a state fisheries biologist. I actually turned down a position uh, in the state of South Dakota that would have been located out of the capital. Um, kind of crazy story. I was driving back from the interview and I got a call from Dr. Jones and he said, hey, how would you like to interview with, with us for, a you know, an opportunity at Pure Fishing? So here the whole time I thought I was going to be a fish biologist and you know, I said, I think I'll take that interview. And I, I did get offered the fish biologist job, but, you know, I took a risk and decided I was going to try to do this job and take an interview, even though I hadn't gotten the job. And, you know, I got the job. So that's kind of how it all panned out for me. Crazy, Crazy how life works. <laughs> yeah. No engineering background, but I'm doing and, and making baits and developing baits. And it's just, it's pretty surreal. And to know, like, to know about the fish and their feeding yeah. habits and things like that probably came into play as well. Right. So I've, I've always been thinking about what, what do the fish key in on with baits. And, you know, when I developed my own baits before I came to work at Berkeley or Pier Fishing, um, 
you know, I thought about how the fish would respond. I would test my own baits and I always took that biological background experience into fishing lures. So, and I do that today. I'm always thinking about what the fish will tell me. Right. Now, back when you were making your own baits out of wood and whatnot, uh, what percentage of those would you say, you know, ended up being a successful bait? Um, every single one of them. Really? No, I'm, I'm kidding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, there was lots of failures. Uh, I'll tell you what the coolest thing, though, the most rewarding thing was, you know, there's all these baits out there in the market that wobble. I'm not going to throw any names out there, but we all know who, who they, they are, including the ones that we develop at Berkeley. But when I was little, I strived to make a bait wobble like, like a crankbait you see in the market today. And I did that when I was like 10 years old. And it was like the coolest feeling in the world. And I made a bunch of baits. I'll probably never show anybody. They're really ugly, terrible looking baits, but, uh, they did, they did wobble and I did catch fish on them, but, um, you know, eventually, uh, started making these, these baits. And, um, I don't know, I probably made about 20 of them when I was between nine and 12. Then I quit, um, lost interest, just fished, worked at, you know, Oh shucks, bait and tackle for a while. Um, then I started getting interested again when I worked at the Iowa DNR and then I really started cranking them out. I bought a Dremel tool, I bought an airbrush. I bought all these little utensils to be creative and I would go, uh, then I went back to college and I, and I just, in my free time after classes, I'd start working on these baits and I would, it was kind of funny because in the class, like seminars, I'd start listening, I get bored. So I started drawing or designing, <laughs> sketching oh, lure yeah. ideas in my head that on paper, and uh, I either did that or I took a like a block of wood and I would just have a vision of what I wanted it to be in my head for a shape or body design until I got it there with my Dremel. And then I'd, I'd test it wherever I could, you know, whether it was a small little gravel pit or my bathtub, if it was the winter, whatever. Uh, I would do that until I'd get the balance right, um, the action right. Um, but the failures happened in the process. So what I would do is I'd kind of grind down the bait and if, I thought it would work perfect. If it didn't do the things I wanted, uh, I would keep adjusting it until it did the stuff I wanted. So when I say every bait ended up being the way I wanted it to be, most of them did. I'd say about 75%. The rest of them, I would just cast aside eventually, and those would just kind of be the misfit lures. And um, I don't even know where those went, but I kept all the good ones. Now, did any of those, like, early on baits that you designed have any impact on well obviously they all had impact but like that early vision are any of them like vision for some of the baits you have designed now for berkeley um you know we've we've done a couple things um you know with with some ideas we did uh you know a couple prototypes i really can't really mention any specific names because they don't have them um but um and some of the baits aren't out yet. So, but maybe a couple things, but honestly, not so much that those designs or ideas came to fruition here with the products. I, I think I, you know, just started with, uh, started from scratch with, um, the, 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 the other person I work with, Kelly, she and I, we, we design and develop all the baits. Um, uh, but, um, but a lot of the, the ideas, aren't really taken into account with what we do i think it's more it just helped hone my skills i became more hands-on in the craft of making lures understanding pull points how baits moved you know what i did is it's simple i took wooden baits i took 
um, things that you I, basically a spinner blade and I was able to bend them with the pliers and get different angles and test them and get the right action. Some, sometimes just simple things can make lures. And, uh, you know, I, I did that and then messed around with those and, you know, but I'd say a lot of those ideas for the vibrations stuff are there, you know, like if I knew, I knew how to make a bait vibrate with a wide wobble or a tight wobble, I took that here. Um, but you know, what we can do with research and testing here at Berkeley, just, uh, it, it blow your mind. And, and, uh, we share a little bit of that, but not probably only 25% of that ever gets communicated. But, you know, we have a whole research or, or motion library of like every, everything you could possibly think about what you'd want to change on a hard bait, what it would do to the action of the bait. And it's amazing. You can move a pull point a millimeter and it changes the way the bait moves in the water and, and how, um, you know, it would perform. So maybe, maybe a change like a millimeter doesn't do all that much to every bait, but understanding these things and putting it all together makes it a lot easier for our team to be able to make the best baits that we can possibly make that catch more fish. Right. Yeah. Now, now, when you uh, when you were first uh, starting to uh, build these baits, were you targeting walleye or were you targeting bass or, or were you just kind of targeting anything that would bite? Um, the ones that I made myself before I came to yeah to beer fishing, yeah. So um, smallmouth um, and largemouth, I made a lot of topwater baits, popping baits, walking baits. Um, I wanted baits that would cast far, and then I made some crank baits. So crank baits with a wide wide action of vibration and, and things like that. So, um, that would be the bass side. And then walleyes, I focused on some more of the diving crankbaits, you know, a lot of it was shallow water. Um, the coolest thing was catching fish on my own baits. I caught five pound smallmouth on my own topwater baits. I caught walleyes over 27 inches, wader fishing with my own wooden baits. Um, so once I did that and got that feeling of success, I knew that I had to make baits. I, I knew I wanted to make baits for my career. I just didn't know how I'd be able to do it. Right. Um, so, yeah, but luckily I ended up in the place I am. I mean, it, it, it kind of took a lot of lot of luck rolling my way, I guess. So. Well, hey, take it any way you can <laughs> get it. Right. <laughs> right, yeah. Now, you do both bass and walleye now, right? Uh, or Basically all hard baits, uh, everything at Pure Fishing, correct? Right. So any hard bait shape, any terminal tackle shape, whether it's a jig or hook, um, I work directly on those projects. Yep. And uh, all the way from the original concept or I, I, idea to the initial design sketches, working back and forth uh, with uh, with my colleague Kelly on the body design, the prototyping, the action, you know, that that's really what sets us apart is Anybody can come up with a body design. Uh, I think a lot of companies, they go, what they do is they'll take a bait, they'll make a body design, they'll get a bill, it'll do some stuff they want to do, they'll pull it through the water in a tank or go out and test in the field and say, yeah, that's good. But what we do is we take it to the next level with actions of bait. So, for example, a bait that, that is coming out, which you guys, I'm sure you've heard of, is called the Hit Stick, Berkeley yeah. Hit Stick. Have you guys heard the, about that one yet? Yep. yep. So... That one, we have seven different um, sizes of the hit stick. There's just a little minnow bait. 
Um, but I dialed in the action specifically for every bait. So it wasn't just like I, I had the action in one and scaled it, you know, to all the sizes and then they were just done. Um, to get the, the whole family done, just in the number nine size, the nine centimeter size, it took 23 different body shape adjustments, like different bodies just to get the body in the action right and then internal weights and adjustments on that there was even more prototypes so that was just one um until we got it just perfect in the lab and we can we can uh, look at the actions we have a sophisticated uh ability to be able to look at exact actions of baits by quantifying them and uh looking at different action metrics um and then we just build that throughout the family so right. it's now, now so, you kind of touched on it there, but, uh, you know, that, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. How long does it take you to, to develop one of these baits? You know, obviously you said 23 different body shapes. So that's not something that you're doing over one week time. I mean, how, how long does that process take? Right. And that's just, you know, that kind of stuff just get the prototype approved, you know, whether the pro approves it or I approve it. Um, that's just to get there. Um, then you got to do all the color development and get all that done. But I'd say we're, we're averaging about two to three years, you know, oh, to wow, get wow. a bait from the beginning to the end, you know, so we take the time to get them right. Um, some, some are faster, some are slower, like the hit stick, to be honest, that was, um, that was more of a side project at first until we really got it going. And our, our goal was to always develop a line of minnow baits that had true balsa action, you know, Aside from true balsa minnows, there's there's nothing out there that's plastic that has the action of balsa, which is mm -hmm. a lively action, right? It's a fast, rapid action. Right. Um, nothing out there like that. A lot of people have said that they have these baits that have balsa action. Not true. I can analyze all that, and, and I have. I can tell you none of that is true. Um, and essentially what we were able to do is break the balsa code. So we, with the body design... And our flash disc, uh, flash disc technology and all that, we're able to get a bait that has true balsa-like action. It casts really good, um, further than any balsa bait on the market today. Um, super versatile, and you know that that whole family. I've been working on and off on that since I came to pier fishing, which was nine nine years ago. So, on and off, but really hard the last two years to get it all done. Crazy right on. So now, yep. how how many projects do you usually have going on at the same time? Lots. Say, <laughs> I mean, it's not like you guys are only putting out a few right. baits here so, and there. I mean, you guys have a lot, a big line of lineup of baits. So how? Right. Yeah. Right. So every day is really busy, um, and but it but it's awesome that it's busy. But let me give you an example. Last year, we launched a bunch of Fusion nineteen terminal tackle items. Just in the terminal tackle items alone. It was 76 unique, different hooks, jig shapes, whatever, you know. So that's across all the the different lines. We did uh, the swim bait jigs, which had, you know, a bunch of different head sizes and two to three hook sizes per per weight. You know, I'm talking about every single model and size collectively. There were 76 different different shapes within that Fusion 19 family that we extended last year. And then, you know, we did the spy bait. Um, if you guys are familiar with the Berkeley Spy, yeah. we have a fast, fast sink and a slow sink. Those are, you know, I put them right on par with the best ones out there today for spy baits. You know, we did our research and homework and 
um, worked with Josh Bertrand, getting them perfect. We did the Fritz sides. Yep. I'm sure you guys have heard of the Fritz sides. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. So the Fritz sides are really blowing up for us now. They also have that true balsa action. Um, you can see if you look at the belly, they got the flash disc technology. Um, you know, we, we spent a long time getting those right with David Fritz. So, um, yeah, there's there's all kinds of stuff going on. And uh, I, I honestly, it's, it's tough for me to even remember all the things that I've worked on. I, I tabulated it one time. I think I put it out there, but I, I think at one point last year, I, I said I'd worked on like over 250 different shapes at, at pier fishing since I've come on board in nine years. Last year would have been eight years. So, you know, this year there's a ton more coming out there. So, you know, a lot of, lot of shapes. Absolutely crazy. A lot of colors too. Now you mentioned uh, Bertrand. You mentioned uh, David Fritz. Uh, right. I, I had t- uh, messaged you here a couple weeks ago, and you had Gary Parsons in there to uh, yeah. to work with uh, him. Uh, yep. You know who who was the first person when you first got there? Who was the first big name pro that came in? Because I mean that had to be that had to be pretty crazy. You know, a guy fresh <laughs> into the job, and all of a sudden, hey, here's so and so. Who was it? Yeah. So. Really, the first experience I had with pros, uh, you know, working on the flicker shad, uh, it would have been the four centimeter and the six centimeter um, was Gary Parsons and Keith Cavias. They didn't come in, but it's conference calls, and we would analyze the bait actions through video conference. And, you know, they know what they're looking for. And, you know, I can work on the baits to get them exactly what they need based off our research. Um, it's not so much doing the video conference stuff anymore. Um, we, we get the, the guys come in, they work directly with me and our equipment and facility in the back. You know, we have this state of state of the art research facility. That's where all the pros come in. It's got a casting pool. We have a flow tank. We can, where we micro analyze the bait actions down to the very specific things like roll, um, and how the tail moves and all that stuff. But, um, I would say then after that, other pros came in for some soft baits. I really wasn't too much a part of any of that but i would say when gary and keith came in the first time they did those would be the first people and then after that david fritz and i've spent a lot of time with david fritz the crankbait king so i've I've probably developed gosh i don't know 25 different baits with david fritz maybe more wow you know a lot of them what's kind of cool is a lot of these baits will never see the light of day too you know there's always these ones that we work on that I will never, we'll never launch them. And it's like, gosh, some days I wish I could just show people those, but right. well, yeah, you, you can show us if you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. I need them someday. So I, I suppose I can, but no, it's, it's just really cool. And uh, it's neat to work with the pros and uh, it's, it's really something different. You know, when we have, when we have something like our, our research area and, and we can, literally use a flow tank and microanalyze the exact actions of a bait. I can take competitor baits, competitor baits in there. I can take our baits. I can see exactly what theirs are doing, what ours are doing. And I can work off one another until I get the bait exactly where I want it to be, exactly where the pro wants it to be. Um, all the way down to every last detail of how the bait moves in the water. And one thing I always say at the seminars I, I I'm starting to do is, you know, it's not it's not one action or two actions. It's not how just the bait rolls or how deep it goes. It's it's really about a a, a 
bunch of different actions working together to make it a, you know, a bait that truly catches more fish. So um, it's kind of an action package, if you will, uh, a suite of actions together, making them good. Right. Now you mentioned uh, that flow tank and, and I, uh, I don't think people, a lot of people probably really don't realize the, or realize the resources that you have uh, in that lab there. Uh, explain right. to the listeners what that flow tank is. Well, I can only explain so much, but essentially... Yeah, it, well, explain what you can. <laughs> Sorry. Right, right. So essentially, it's it's a tank that, that you put the baits in and the water flows around them. And uh, you can see that in some of the videos. We just did a kind of a Berkeley Anthem video. You guys should check that out or others should check that out. It, it kind of shows the baits in action, the prototypes and how they move. So you get a, you get a side view, you get a, a bottom view, top view, you get a view of the tail, um, and then we control the speed. Everything's at a standard speed. Um, so it's all very scientific. Everything's standardized, standard positions of the lures in the tank when we do our analysis and um you know, it's, it's very scientific. So like I said, uh, I can get very specific numbers in our, in our mathematical models of what the baits are doing. And, and, uh, I don't think anybody's come close to what we do doing it that way. And, and the library and research we've had for the last 15, 20 years is probably never going to be surpassed in my opinion. Is, is it always a relief when you finally get to release a bait and you can actually like talk about it to the general public? Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, you know, with the hit stick coming, that that's uh, is a super exciting time. All the baits, really, but that one's neat. And I'll just say that because I think either tonight or tomorrow, I'm going to share a, a sneak peek at one of the colors that we've worked on that I've been waiting to share. It's really cool. So I'm going to post that on my social media. So um, see what people think about that. Um, but you know, it's cool. I think the the coolest thing though is to be able to have people come back and tell you. Hey, I used bait, a bait or whatever that you developed and I caught the fish of my life on it. Or, Hey, we went out on a, a trip and these things just are dominating or somebody wins a tournament or does really good in a tournament on it. Those are the things that excite me. Um, I'm, I'm all about trying to make the best baits out there. And that's just a really uh, gratifying experience to hear that feedback. I would, I would certainly think, uh, you know, watching, uh, you know, whether it be Bass Live or MLF or, or whatever, and, and, you know, if you can get a look at, at what the guy's throwing and it's like, hey, that's, that's what me and him have been working on, you know, that, that would really be incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty neat. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's fun to watch those. Sometimes that, getting to watch that MLF is getting distracting sometimes, you know. But. <laughs> right now, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. especially since it's the only thing on right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a huge sports guy too. So when they when they got rid of the the NCAA tournament, man, I love that time of year. So it's but luckily we got some other stuff to do, and you know, for sure, watch that now. So. Right now, you mentioned some colors and things like that. So then you have you help design the colors of the baits too, not just the yep. design and how they work. Yep. So uh, we do it a couple ways. Some I directly develop and design the the color myself um, um a lot of them though uh especially the bass hard baits come from mike russell at bag five baits he we've we've hired him to basically he's a member of our team but uh, he's a custom painter 
he's he's down south and uh he is he's a phenomenal painter very talented and what we do is i'll, I'll you know either he has some lure ideas or color ideas he comes up with um or i just i'll tell him hey mike let's do this and and let's do a like a natural bluegill or a, a leopard frog like you see on our topwater bullet mm-hmm. pop um stuff like that um fire tails for flicker shads i came up with that um started with the jointed flicker shad so you know that's something i came up with on my own and i did those colors um those were pretty fun i I did have mike help me on a couple of them like the red tail um but uh you know coming up with that and being able to you know i I did everything i I could i i I painted them in our in our facility and i tried to mix and match colors and i tell you what i think i had over 70 different jointed fire tail flicker shad colors that i had worked on and and you'd put them all together and a lot of them just looked terrible so just to get the, i think the eight colors we launched i think i had over 70 different versions and um yeah it's 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 tough making colors you gotta it it takes an artistic eye you know and and i i was originally that was another thing too I, in high school i was also thinking about going to school for art you know i did a lot of canvas painting and drawing and stuff so um you know it helps with that too with the colors so having that you know, kind of the artistic eye for colors. Now, now you mentioned that you started off with 70 different colors and then you turn around and release eight. Uh, are you going out with 70 different colors and, and just trying to see, you know, golly, which one, uh, which one gets the most hits? Are you sending nope. 70 to these pros or, or who narrows no. that down? Nope. So what I do is when we develop the colors, um, I'll just work back and forth with the pro uh, that's, that's, lead on the project um and we'll work it through with uh with our you know our, our other team members uh, like uh kevin um kevin malone another guy i work with really closely um he's in the brand side of the operation but we'll work together we'll have meetings we'll kind of we'll come up with colors we'll get them prototyped or designed and we'll have the meeting with the pro and we'll kind of filter it down to the top colors that we collectively agree would be the best for the market. But we study the market. We, we know what the market basically has with colors. And then we try to make them a Berkeley color or try to give them the Berkeley spin on the color. Um, but we don't go out and field test all these colors. And I'll tell you why, because, you know, just coming back from that fisheries background in limnology, which is like the study of water, right? Um, and you think of all the stuff like light penetration and all the colors and stuff, really what you end up with, um, is, you know, a lot of the colors get absorbed and filtered out and you just have a lot of contrast. So really when I think of baits, I think of this, I think of these, these in order, you know, I think of the shape, the size, the action actions really number one for me, but you got to have the shape and the size first. So shape, body size, the action, and then uh contrast meaning like a counter shade of a minnow a black top and a light light belly counter shades are important we found that out with uh with our research in the lab um and then very very far from contrast is color you know sometimes colors are super important we know bright colors and dirty water natural colors and clear but a lot of that has to do with contrast you know so when you think about that on on that level i you know colors are awesome they're great for sales shelf appeal we try to get them brighter natural bright colors have the full offering because we know that that helps sell the product but 
you know, when for me it's and, and it's fun to do colors. Um, I truly love it, but I want to make sure I get the bait, the platform right. Because once you get the platform, that being the bait and the action right, you, it's all good from there. You know, right. I my goal is to try to make a flicker minnow outproduce every other trolling bait that it goes up against three, three or four to one, and that's what we do in the field. So, you know, I, I should add, like, you know, we we get the prototype we want with the pro. We'll test in the lab. We have a racetrack. We can do that for largemouth bass. Sometimes we're doing that. Other times we we have the pro come in. We work on the bait. We get the exact action to where we feel we, we, we like it. And then we don't know, you know, what the what the fish want in terms of what makes the fish strike the lure. We can look at it, and from our research, we can say that's pretty good, and we've gotten good at that. But in the end, you know, kind of our motto, especially with working with Gary Parsons and Keith Cavias is let's let the fish tell us what they like um that's how we we do it and so we'll take the baits out in the field they're tested right um head to head against the competitors and then again our goal is to try to outperform the lead competitor out there like two three four to one once we do that we approve the bait it's ready to go nice so that's kind of our cornerstone philosophy of building a better bait or a better mousetrap right now, now that just kind of made me think up a question. Uh, you talked yeah. about taking these prototypes out to the field. Yep. Have, you, have you ever broke off on a fish and just thought like, oh, now that prototype's out there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, that's happened. Nothing but, you can do about it, huh? Yeah, it's just an early form of seeding, I guess. Somebody <laughs> will get it, and they'll be like, most likely somebody will get it and not even understand it. Right, um, or, but yeah. You know, there's no way for them to know what the bait is and the action. They'll just get it. Uh, it could be a, a version that doesn't even work good. But, um, yeah, if you ever see any baits floating around there that don't have anything and they look like they might be something specific, yeah, it, it could be a Berkeley prototype. But <laughs> Someday there's going to be somebody that, that puts a Facebook post out there that, hey, found this bait on the shore and it's freaking awesome. <laughs> Does anyone know what it is? And you're going to be sitting there like, oh, just wait two months, man. <laughs> yep, yep. Now, uh, another thing that I wanted to talk to you about, Dan, uh, because you're a lot more than just fishing, uh, is the metal detecting hobby. Okay, how long, how sure. long have you been doing that? Uh, I think this year is going to be like my fifth year doing that. So yeah, I, I, I actually got started with my, my, uh, friend Ed Thielen. So we worked at, uh, the Iowa DNR and in the fisheries department together in Spirit Lake. And, um, so he, he liked things like looking for arrowheads and we did that for a while. And then all of a sudden he was like, Hey, let's, I like this metal detecting thing. You should come with me and do it. And I, I really didn't care for it at first. I, I wasn't any good. Um, but you know, he took me to a good spot finally, and I found a lot of cool old coins and I'm like, wow, this is actually really cool. And now I'm like obsessed with it. Like I almost like it as much as fishing. And, uh, I, the reason I like it is, and they call it dirt fishing and it's just exactly that you, you, you research your sites. Uh, some are boom, some are a bust. Uh, you use electronics just like you would fishing. You read the ground, interpret the signals that your electronics are telling you. And the, the cool part is the surprise, you know, whether it's a old silver coin from the 1800s or just some really cool relic from the past. Uh, I just appreciate it. I like the history and um, it's just another hobby like fishing that I think a lot of people that fish who, who are curious would really like it. 
Right. So, what's what's uh, like probably the most rarest thing you've ever found? Hmm. Uh, I found a penny from 1909. I think it was like a hundred dollars. Uh, most of the stuff that comes out of the ground, honestly, though, it's it's like baseball cards. It's been in this. These things have been in the ground. A lot of them are in terrible condition. It's just the cool history element. Um, so you don't really get the true value out of them. But, um, you know, I found some gold rings. Those are probably the most valuable thing. Luckily for gold, it comes out of the ground really like it's just been dropped. Right. It doesn't interact with the ground um, really at all or the water if you find them in the water. But um, some silver coins come out of the ground pretty good. Um, I found some old barber half dollars and things like that. Those are pretty cool. Um so yeah, that's it's fun, um, but uh, you know, in the end, if it came between metal detecting and fishing, and what I had to pick, I'd definitely probably pick fishing. <laughs> oh, yeah. ho- ho- hopefully, you don't find anything too valuable, or you'll be going in and designing metal detectors. <laughs> right. Hey, well, I should ask. I should ask you guys a question. So, what what are your favorite Berkeley hard baits, Scott? I I use the flicker shad a lot when I walleye fish. Yeah. yeah. And honestly, like, uh, Matt got me on the flicker shad last year, but, uh, honestly, I didn't, I never threw a lot of hard baits, uh, until last year when Matt started getting me into bass fishing, mainly the big amount of my fishing was, uh, vertical jigging, uh, off, off the side of the dock and whatnot, because we never had a fishing boat and then, uh, throwing, throwing twister tails and whatnot down here in the river and, uh, yeah, otherwise I was mostly an ice fisherman, uh, you know, just until just lately, uh, you know, Matt got me into the bass fishing deal. Right. Um, well, definitely, you know, try the Berkeley Chapo. You know, yeah. if you guys haven't tried that yet, um, that is super fun, especially smallmouth. Um, in, in largemouth, I've, I've caught a lot of really nice fish on it. Um, that would be one I'd recommend anybody to that really likes straight up easy cast it out reel it in twitch it 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 just catches them um and then uh you know a lot of our top water baits i'm super proud of working with justin lucas on you know our bullet pop is is a phenomenal popper that literally walks 180 pops spits does everything you would ever want a popper to do um you know those would be those would be two that you guys should definitely get a try this this summer oh yeah i gotta i like the bullet pop I actually, you do. Yeah, I awesome. bought some Chapos last year. Yeah, you did. Yep, they were over at the. I got them at the outlet store. Yep. Right yep. At, right at the end of the year, so we got a couple of this of the spy baits too that we got to get trying this spring. I'm kind of looking forward to throwing those for the smallmouth. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I see you guys. Uh, I don't know if you did it as much last year, but you guys are always hopping around the Rock River. That's pretty cool. I've I've fished oh, yeah. there. Grow. I grew up fishing there. You know, that's neat. That's a neat little river, isn't it? We were just it's down awesome. there. We were just down there the other day, and Scott had a smallie on first one of the season, but it got off. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, that's that's good. Good to get one that early too. Yeah. You know, I, we thought we'd get northerns, but man, this thing was big and really dark. God, I was so disappointed when it shook off. Oh yeah, those are just. I love smallmouths. By far my favorite fish. I I had really good luck down there, right uh, just under the dam, that first cement area that people drive off on. That that I don't I don't think you can drive across it anymore. But right, um, right below the dam, that first uh, cement walkway or path, just casting above that with the, with our square bowl, yeah. our square build crankbait. And uh, you know what's interesting about rivers is I never thought about pausing a bait especially a square bill 
um, with the current and I wasn't catching much on it. And I thought, man, they would just crush it. And all of a sudden I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, I have to just try something different. I know they're here. So I, I started with like three to five second pauses. And then all of a sudden I caught eight in a row. So that's something, something to try. You know, a lot of people in rivers don't think about pause and baits, especially for three to five seconds, but they hit it every time. So that was a cool bait to try in the river. And they, they don't really get snagged that much in there. So it's kind of fun to fish them. Yeah. Yeah. That, that'd probably be something really good for me. Cause I donated, uh, for, for, uh, jig heads <laughs> to the bottom of the river on Wednesday. Oh yeah. So. Those rivers love jig heads. Oh, yeah. They'll eat them up. <laughs> yep. And I, I don't have the patience to sit there and, and, you know, kind of twitch them out. I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I donate a lot to the bottom of the river. So, oh yeah. So you guys got any other questions for me about lures or, you know, any of this? No, no that's, yeah, I think, uh, you know, unless you've got something else you want to add. Well, you know, I just, I, I think uh, I'll, I'll make a point to say that, you know, I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would have a job like I do today. It's, it's a true dream job. Um, I would say anybody who loves fishing, passionate about fishing, um, or, or kids especially, if you think that maybe someday you want to develop fishing lures, um, keep that dream going and, uh, who knows where it may take you. You know, I, I didn't think I'd be doing this. I just made lures for fun. And then, uh, now I'm, I'm literally working on the, some of the coolest baits in the industry and developing baits for, for Berkeley and pier fishing. So, you know. Dreams do come true. Right <laughs> advice. No, and that, and that it's actually something that me and Matt have talked about. You know, um, I think, you know, a lot of these kids growing up, uh, you know, they want to be a fisherman. And, you know, I think a lot of people forget that being a pro fisherman isn't the only job, you know. I mean, to go over there, like at Pure Fishing, I mean, there's a lot of jobs over there. And, you know, I mean, whether it be working on fishing line or, or you know, doing something with bait development like you, I mean, there's a lot of jobs over there that can get you, a, you know, a job in the fishing industry. Absolutely. You're right. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that, too, because if you think fishing line is cool, I mean, we have some tremendous experts. I mean, really, our R&D department are some uh, just so, some of the smartest people out there when it comes to fishing tackle and, and fishing products in the industry. So it's it's amazing, you know, what we can do and what we can develop. But if people like fishing line and, and you're interested in working here, you know, just keep keep tabs on us and see. Eventually there'll be positions that, that eventually open. And, you know, it's, again, I, I never thought I'd be here. And, and all of a sudden, Dr. Jones... Uh, for those that that know him, he was the one who basically he was like one of the fathers of power bait. And I get a call from him, and he's like, "Hey, are you interested in working for us?" And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, yes." <laughs> so it's yeah. uh, it's a neat, it's a neat thing, and and uh, been able to work on a lot of really cool baits, and uh, you know, that's it's it's amazing. Very cool. Now, Dan, uh, before we let you go. Um, you had talked earlier about, uh, you know, doing, uh, a, a release on some colors of those, uh, hit sticks on your right. social media. Where can people right. find you on social media? So right now I just have Facebook. So just Dan Spangler, um, on Facebook. Um, and you can see, uh, if, if you search my name and there's a guy with a big small mouth right now and a spy bait in his background, that's me. So, um, 
but uh, you can kind of follow what we do. I so every now and again I'll do some posts about lures and work or what's been going on in Berkeley and um, you know or just uh, some on the water stuff about catching fish or stuff like that. So uh, I, you know I'll do a lot of that little sneak peeks before the baits come out. Um, but I and I will mention too the hit stick they're going to be coming out in July because I know people will ask that. So July of twenty twenty this year is when the hit sticks will come out so right on and they're gonna crack them yeah that's right no nope. yep they're gonna be great because if if you like if you like a bait that you know performs like a a balsa minnow but it casts you know a lot further um but you can also fish it like a finesse jerk bait if you like jerk baits i'm a jerk bait bait jerk bait freak so um of course everybody teases me and they're like of course you're gonna try to make a jerk bait out of this bait but yeah i mean so it's 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 a great bait for casting trolling and fishing like a jerk bait it's really a cool bait and it's a it's it's a slow floating bait slow fo- floating minnow bait so very cool do you got any seminars coming up dan um nothing in the books right now but okay. you know if anybody's interested they can reach out to me um um so uh they can find me through my facebook or uh you know i could i could uh, if you ever hear anything let me know yeah i'm yeah, always sure. willing to do the seminars and the cool thing about seminars that i do is that's all about giving back so uh some of the seminars if you guys seen that i do i i get i give out baits to everybody in attendance and i get as many baits as i can to kids you know because they're the future sure. the, yeah. the kids are the future and, uh, you know, we want to recruit them into, you know, the fishery, um, just, just, um, just keep that going. And, and that's our future. So that's, uh, and it's cool. The kids just absolutely love the, the free baits at the seminars. They just go crazy for it. Heck yeah. <laughs> no. Well, Dan, uh, hope to see you around the rock river here, over here sometime or over at Okaboji. But, uh, yeah, we really appreciate you taking time out of your day to uh, sit down and chat with us. And, uh, hopefully our listeners got to know uh, a little bit more about bait design. Yeah. Oh, thanks for having me. And yeah, if you guys ever want to get together, do some fishing, uh, just let me know and maybe we can go to the rock river. <laughs> Sounds Absolutely. good. Sounds good. See All you, right. man. Sounds good guys. Thanks. Bye. There he goes, Dan Spangler from Pure Fishing over in Spirit Lake, Iowa, wow. right down the road. Right down the road, right down on Highway 9. Yeah. No, that was... That's cool. Very cool. Uh, you know, that that was definitely somebody that me and Matt had talked about for a long time uh, getting on because, uh, yeah, obviously he is from right down the road. And, uh, you know, just just a really cool story about how it all came to be and, and uh, you know, the stuff that that guy gets to see day-to-day that you know is a secret from the public and probably just eye-opening right they keep it on under tabs pretty pretty good over there it's under heavy security i mean you're a lot of places in that place you can't uh have a cell phone with you when you go into those places i think i'm sure they gotta sign like what is that uh, non-disclosure right right contracts when you go in i mean it is a and it would just be tough to be able to sit there and be coming up with all these cool baits that you know might revolutionize the way we fish, but you just kind of kind of keep it to yourself and the people that are working on the project with you. Right. Well, how hard would it be to come on a podcast like this and be like, right. okay, I can talk about this and this and this and this and this. Can't talk about that. <laughs> right. You know? I mean, it, it would be tough. It's... Right. No. 
No, uh, like uh, like we said earlier, we appreciate Dan uh, taking time out of his day to uh, join us. That was a cool interview, and uh, hopefully we can see him around and go yeah. fishing with him. Hopefully so. we can hook up with him sometimes and sometime and get after some fish. Um, right. It is cool. Like, how many have you ever, when you were growing up, or even now, you ever just kind of tinker with a bait and kind of come up, try to come up with your own bait? No, ever I just, do the doodling like he talked about drawing up? Oh man, I used to do that quite a bit. Really? Oh yeah, I just probably I'm not very good at math or anything like that. Yeah, so. no. Basically, my wildest uh, deal is like figuring out how to hook like wax worms on a small <laughs> jig, like in a different way, like wacky rig them, double them up, squeeze the guts out or, of them, turn them inside out, like just try different things. And I think that's like kind of what his message was there. You know, you got can't be afraid to to fail on things. Sometimes right. fail with failure comes success, and you know, and vice versa. So I mean, you. It's all part of the process, and you can't give up on it. Right. As long as you learn something along the way, it's not right. a failure. So yeah, Exactly right. I mean, getting there and just, like you said, starting at a young age and yep. testing these things out and bringing them to the local gravel pits and whatever and throwing them around. Right. No, uh, uh, you know, Dan mentioned that uh, when he was growing up, he came over here to the Rock River uh, and fished here, uh, right where me and Matt fish all the time. And uh, me and Matt actually got to get out on Wednesday. We did. And uh, got down there. It was a, a decent enough day. So uh, it just we said, felt good to cast. It man. did. It did. We <laughs> both, uh, we both, uh, you know, kind of stayed right in the same area and, and uh, you know, just picked apart some rapids. Uh, no luck. I well, did. I did have one hooked. You did have a smallie hooked. I did have a smallie hooked, and it was big, and it was beautiful, and it was dark, and everything that you could imagine—just the most beautiful smallmouth in the world. That's what it was. It was huge. It was huge. It would. Yep. I mean, I don't know if I would have been able to lift it up. Right. I. I probably would have needed. Monster. It was huge. It I mean, actually was. Happened? It actually was pretty. It was decent. a good. It was a good. It was a good one. Good smallie. And it shook. And there went my twister tail flying through the air. And there you sat looking at it, swim away. Waving. It was terrible. It was terrible. My life I think flashed I, before my eyes. And I think you're so you. I think you said something like it got caught on the bottom of your hole, or your transducer got in the way, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, got wrapped in my deucer. And I was like, Scott, we're not ice fishing, man. <laughs> we're out, this is open water now. So you, I mean, it's still taking a little bit of time for you to make that transition. So yeah. I can understand it. Yeah, uh, my cold snap. Uh, my cold snap uh, medium light reel did or, or rod did good down there though. <laughs> just kidding. Nope. No, that was fun. Uh, like we said, it was, it was good just to get out there and cast. And uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, you know, we we had some snow come through since then. And uh, you know, but there are some nicer temperatures on the horizon. Hopefully, the rain can stay away and and the yeah, river and and uh, everything can uh, stay at a good level. Uh, I did see that Okaboji, uh, East Okaboji's got a lot of openings, a little bit of ice left on right, it. Right, everything but, uh, seems to kind of be opening up over there. So, but, yep. you know, it should be going pretty soon as long as we get some warmer temps. Uh, you're going to see a lot of boat traffic come starting. Right, Not, but I have seen Facebook posts of people up in northern Minnesota yeah, that are saying, people. I'm still fishing for my driver's seat. So. That's right, there's still people driving out on the ice. Uh, my brother Mike was up at Lake of the Woods recently, and they did pretty well and caught some fish up there. And yeah, they were driving out there, pulled the big sleeper house out. So yep. there's still a lot of people that are listening to this that are still out there in heavy ice fishing mode. Right, I did see... Uh, 
I did see the NWT released released a statement uh, saying that they have not canceled that uh, first uh, one over in Chamberlain. That's oh, the, the uh, end of April, end of April, last right day there. of April, first day of May. Um, they have not canceled it. I think they're just going to kind of wait around. But they did say that they would do whatever the what is it CDC or yep. whatever uh, recommends. Uh, recommends. But uh, that was a little bit too much into the virus, so we're going to steer away from that now. Um, no, MLF is uh, still going. Um, uh, FLW, the Toyota Series, I think that's what they're calling it. I think they had a tournament. Did they? Yeah, some of the northern guys did pretty good. I think they finished in the top 30 or right outside the top 30. Okay. So that was good to see. Absolutely. Um, I didn't see the official results. I think Andy Young and Jim Moino were both up in there. Okay. Hey, I got a, I got a cool one for you. I got a question for you. I got a question. So uh, I read an article the other day uh, from the Bassmaster Classic, and uh, I think it was Gene Gilliland, I think is his name. Uh, he's like kind of head of conservation for BASS, and uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, there was 520 bass caught in the Bassmaster Classic, and, uh, you know, those, those guys had to take a 90-mile uh, drive after they got off the water to where the weigh-in was. It was okay. 90 miles, and they kept those fish in their live well, um, whatever, you know, take them on stage, weigh them, and then immediately after that, they put them into a uh, fish hauling truck, brought them to a local hatchery where they could monitor them overnight, you know, in, in good water, and then reacclimate them to the water of Lake Gunnersville, you know, the temperature-wise and whatnot. But 520 fish. Guess how many of those 520 fish they released back in? Uh, I saw the article. Didn't read it. Well, um, if you already know the... I don't so, know the answer. I didn't okay. get a chance to read it. I did see that they were putting out there. I mean, it wasn't 100% success. Right. And, uh, and you know, even those catch, weigh, and release ones sometimes, that's it's not going to be 100%. Nope. Nope. You, you, know, you hook them deep and whatever. There's going to be things things sometimes. Um, I'm, you said 520, 520, I'm going to say 513, 515. Really? Yep. Five fatalities. So that's, not, that's I mean, when you're talking about a big tournament, like 500 and some bass, less than and, 1%. And you know, and them taking a ride like that, it's, and you know, and a lot of those could have been situations where somebody just, you know, got a hook deep or something like right, that. So. Right. No, I thought that was really pretty incredible. Um, did you, you know. did you see the controversy in the MLF the other day? The one guy was, I can't remember who it was, he was bed fishing, and then he... Right. They, they accused him of uh, snagging a six-pound bass. Yep, But yep. they looked into it, and he had been sight fishing. And the rule, for people that don't know, is if you're actively sight fishing for a bedded fish, you can, it has got, the hook's got to be inside of the mouth. It can't, you can't snag it or anything like that. But if you're blind casting and you're just fishing and you hook one in the side, you're fine. Right. Because you didn't intentionally try to snag that one. So this guy had been bed fishing, made a He was kind of going along, getting frustrated with that. So he turned and made a cast, from what I'm understanding, just a blind cast out into the lake away from where he was fishing and was reeling it in and hooked into a fish and it ended up being a six pounder. The way he landed it, with the camera angle and everything like that, people were accusing him of hiding it so that the official couldn't do it, and he quick unhooked it and you know had the guy weigh it. So, yeah, it was kind of a kind of a goofy deal. Obviously, I didn't watch it. 
Uh, anyone who knows me knows that I was not watching it, but uh, <laughs> no, I, I did. Uh, I heard about it on Bass Talk Live, and I did read an article about it. Saw a couple Facebook posts about it, but uh, yeah, they said the way that he did it. You know, he turned his back to the camera to unhook it, and whatnot. You know, it just kind of seemed sneaky, but apparently he bomb casted one out into the middle and and just you know snagged it and that can happen i'm right. not i'm it's, not gonna say that that's wrong well especially earlier in the year a lot of times the fish will just come up and swipe at a bait or when you know when you're blind fishing beds if they are bedded and you can't see the bed and you they'll just come up and like hit at it and sometimes they'll just get hooked in the side or right. you know hooked in the face or something like that so yep yep that can happen another thing that i heard was uh i don't know if you saw this or not but uh, they had the two pound minimum uh, out there uh, on Lake Fork, right? On Lake Fork, but then they turned around and went to a different lake for the very last day. It was a smaller oh, right. lake, but I, there was a two pound minimum. It's, it, there's so many days to these events. They all just, <laughs> when they have them back to back like that, it's, it's like 14 days, and this guy fished on that day, and that guy fished on that day, but they never really fished against each other. And I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I. Yeah, we don't have to explain that, but whatever. There was two pound minimum, and Ot Defoe uh, caught a fish, weighed it, and it weighed one pound fifteen ounces. Ooh. So I guess you are allowed three weighs. So the second time he puts it back on the scale and kind of hooks it in a different position, and it turns around and is one fifteen again. So he decides that he's going to do it again and kind of hooks the fish by a different spot you know whatever in the mouth and weighs it and apparently it was like at 115 quick smacked two like you know just tick two and boom he he unhooks it counts it as two pound bass releases it and that's that like i mean i like ot defoe if there's one mlf guy i do like it's ot but uh you know the longer a fish is out of the water like that the less it's gonna weigh the the water is dropping off of right. it, you know, whatever. It's going to lose weight, if anything. And, man, I th- I think that you got to have – I think you got to weigh a fish and, and you know, it's got to be on there for two seconds or, or you know, I or don't you know. Gotta, if, or you got you to gotta have it hooked in the same spot when you're weighing it. Not, well, something. I right? mean, I don't I know, know how switching spots would – Just different tension. But, you know, right. that, that really kind of makes you – stop and think like is this is this system like i don't know if if i'm gonna weigh a fish three times and and there's an ounce difference on one of the times like i don't know right whatever there's a lot of things to it yep but uh no otherwise i think that's about it i don't know if you've got anything else to talk about no just i got something so something so I was just wondering uh, if if any of you guys that are listening would possibly ever be interested in doing some sort of call-in show. Like if you've got, and I don't know if we've got the technology to pull this off. Maybe I shouldn't even mention it, but I want to see if anyone's interested. If, uh, if we would do some sort of call-in show where uh, if you've got just some wild or hilariously funny uh, fishing story, you know, if you'd call in, uh, we don't care who you are. You don't got to be famous. You don't got to be, you know, whatever. If you've got a good story to tell, uh, you know, we would we would take some calls and record them and then obviously release them on a Monday morning like we normally do. I just want to kind of feel everyone out and see if uh, that would be interesting to anybody. Uh, if you do, send me or Matt or, or the page a message and just say, hey, I, I kind of got a story. Don't got to tell us a story. But uh, right. if, if you guys are interested in something like that, uh, let us know. 
and uh, maybe that's something that we can get coming down the pipe. But yeah, uh, have a, that would be fun to have a little call-in type. I, I think so. Like I said, like I don't that. know if we've got the technology. I, when I texted Matt earlier about it, I said uh, this could either be incredibly awesome or it could be a complete dumpster fire. And uh, right now, I would say it's probably seventy percent dumpster fire, thirty percent uh, successful. But uh, yeah, got to try it sometime, right? Right, right. And at the end of the day, if it fails, then uh, we'll send everyone a text and say, "Hey, sorry, that didn't work." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, if you guys would possibly be interested in something like that, let us know. But otherwise, it could I'd... be as cool and wild of a story as winning uh, Ion X Auger on a fishing podcast. <sighs> How did we not mention that yet? <laughs> we. If you guys, if you guys have been living under a rock and haven't been on Facebook, and some people are right now, yeah, yep, <laughs> no, and and just some people aren't on Facebook, just plain and simple. But uh, yeah, last week, you know, we mentioned Mike Olson gave us an Ion X Auger. Uh, we've got a cool little contest going on on Facebook. Uh, nothing crazy. Um, you just got to go on, like our page, like uh, the Fish, Fish Addictions page, and then tag five buddies in the comments and. Uh, that's how we're doing it. If you if you are subscribed to our podcast, screenshot a picture that you're subscribed and uh, upload that. But that's what we got. I've been rambling now for a while. So that is episode 65. We'll see you next week on episode 66. Unless Matt's got a little something else. I don't have anything else. You don't got anything else. All right, Good we're out of here. Good luck to everybody that's still out there fishing. You bet. See ya. See ya.